really asking for and asking tough questions. Does poverty drive inequality or does inequality drive poverty? Women just were not able to reach out and to look for support. We may all be in the same ocean, but some are in super yachts and some are clinging to debris. Emissions are expected to rise to their highest ever level. What should we do now? We are in the same world. We work together for a common goal. Hello and welcome to Oxfam Ireland's First World Problems podcast. I'm Joyce Fegan, a journalist for more than 15 years. I've traveled the world covering stories that have crossed over women's rights issues refugee camps where it was mostly women and young children. And at home here in Ireland, I've written about it and covered murder cases that were the result of domestic violence. So today I'm delighted to be joined by two powerhouses in the area of women's rights to talk about gender justice. Orla O'Connor, Director of the National Women's Council of Ireland and Linga Mihoa, Country Director for Oxfam in Malawi. As some of you may already know, Orla was co-director of Together for Yes, the campaign that successfully removed the Eighth Amendment from the Constitution in Ireland. And Orla was recognised as one of the 100 most influential people by Time magazine in 2019 for her role in the campaign. Throughout Orla's 25 years in the NGO sector, she has also led many successful campaigns for women's rights, including social welfare reform, pension reform, and for the introduction of quality and affordable childcare. Meanwhile, Linga, who was appointed Oxfam Malawi's country director in 2019, has more than 15 years experience in development work with a focus on gender equality and women's rights and sexual and reproductive health. Before being appointed country director for Oxfam in Malawi, she was deputy country director for the same office and interim country director for Oxfam Papua New Guinea. Other positions Linga has held in Oxfam include gender and HIV advisor and program coordinator for NGO partners. Before joining Oxfam, she worked for the Malawian government in the Ministry of Gender and the Office of the President. Welcome to you both today and thank you so much for joining me. Maybe before we start as an intro question, um, before we get into the impact of COVID on women's rights Linga, we've never met, but I've traveled to Malawi and I have seen firsthand the work being done there to deconstruct gender-based violence specifically, how normalized it is there. And Orla, I have interviewed you many times and the Women's Council has helped me out on numerous stories, as I'm sure you know. But before we get into that, could I ask both of you, maybe Orla first, how difficult is it to work in the area of women's rights nowadays? Is it, oh yeah, there are the issues, let's go for it? Or is it, what are you talking about? I suppose in some ways, Joyce, and just thank you, and it's a real delight to be on the podcast. It's a bit of both, I think. There's a frustration because I think the pace of change for women's equality is so slow. So it does feel like that we're talking about the same issues for a long time. Issues like childcare, around women's leadership, around um, violence against women. And in some areas, it just feels like there's either no progress or the progress is so slow. And then on the other hand, you know, when you look at what the Citizens' Assembly recommended, it gives you real sign for hope because there is clearly a strong public desire for women's equality and for women's rights and for things to happen a lot more quickly. So that gives me a lot of sort of hope and optimism. So it's always, I think, a bit of both. Thanks. And Linga, what's it like for you and the work you're doing in Malawi? How do you see it there when it comes to women's rights? How easy is it to do the work? Is there resistance there? Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. It's my pleasure. 
So again, I think as Ora has said, it's a mixed bag, even in this part of the world. Malawi particularly has been commended for having very progressive laws and policies on uh, women's rights. It's a point of reference in terms of our constitution, which guarantees women's rights. And then we also have the corresponding legislation that have been able to be put in place uh, by government commitments, but also by the civil society and the citizens pushing. The major challenge really is to do with the behavior changes. So the paper barriers are gone, but the behavior challenges are still there. So we do have pervasive social norms that are driven by a very patriarchal society that wants to maintain the status quo. So you really find that whilst the policies have changed, the laws are enabling, but you find that the institutional behaviors and the individual behaviors are still not enabling women and young girls to be able to enjoy their rights. So that's where we really feel shortchanged, that we still have a lot of social norms that are driving inequalities, and also the way institutions are shaped. It is not to advance the spirit of the constitution that guarantees gender equality as its principle and women's rights as one of the key areas of focus. So it's a mixed bag. Thank you. If we could move then into COVID, I suppose the thing that people didn't see coming and as Orla and Lenga, both of you said, we've seen progress and then this pandemic comes in and the beginning in developed countries, it was like, oh, families are having time together and the commute is gone. And then as things progressed, we saw that women were bearing the brunt of COVID. $800 billion in lost income for women in 2020. Globally, women lost 64 million jobs. In the US, one in six women of colour are facing food insecurity. So it's all these backward steps, women leaving the workforce because they have to carry the brunt of childcare and other care work. So Orla, have you in the Women's Council seen the impact of COVID from an Irish context in Ireland about how it's impacting women? Yeah, absolutely. Over the past year and a half, I think it's sort of changed as well as as COVID has gone on. But I mean, without a doubt, in terms of the care issue and highlighting the inequalities with regard to care. And I think that's one of the things that COVID has done. It hasn't created inequalities, but it's heightened them and it's exposed them in a way, I think maybe that people, you know, wouldn't have necessarily been aware of. So yeah, absolutely in terms of the restrictions from COVID and then what that meant in terms of care and particularly around childcare and because of the lack, and I think this is one of the things that COVID really has highlighted, the lack of public services, the lack of public infrastructure to support the issue of care. So for example, you know, for so many of women, and we would have had a lot more women contacting us individually in the Women's Council, grandparents provided a huge amount of care support in Ireland and that wasn't there and it was very much down to women and families. We also really saw it in terms of domestic violence and the increase in incidences and that also sort of it changed in terms of, you know, I suppose how that manifested itself because at the start in COVID you actually saw a decrease in calls to frontline services and to members of the Women's Council and that was because women just were not able to reach out and to look for support because they were, you know, in that really close sort of setting with their abusers and with perpetrators. And then, and I think it it was a positive sign in COVID. It was one of the areas where there was a real coming together of frontline services of, of civil society and of the state and the guards forming a new awareness campaign. And then we saw a rapid increase in calls, a rapid increase in terms of looking for support, for example, from refuges, And then on the real downside of that, this 
increase in waiting lists, waiting lists for refuge services, waiting lists for supports from the frontline services. And that's a dreadful situation because it's so hard to report domestic violence to any service, but then to be put on waiting lists. So, I mean, you've mentioned the economic situation for women and there's a number of different pieces within that many women who are contacting us talking about is it worthwhile going back to work because of the childcare situation but also it's this cycle of being in low-paid work work that's very much organized around care because of the lack of care so I think we have a real long-term issue and problem in relation to women's participation because we're seeing higher numbers of long-term unemployed women and that move back into employment is taking place at a much slower rate for women. So there are some really big issues there. And Linga, how did the pandemic affect women in Malawi? What changes did you see happening because of COVID-19 there? Well, we really see that it brought into the fore the existing inequalities, which include the gender inequalities, the income inequalities. So for the start is that quite a number of women, especially in the rural areas, they are illiterate. And uh, given the misinformation that surrounded COVID-19, it meant that women and even the girls that have dropped out of school were not able to access the right information because of a lot of misinformation that went around, their inability to access correct information around COVID due to those high literacy levels, but also just general limited access to the information channels meant that women and young people that are illiterate were already in the peripheral in terms of having the ability to respond and also to have the correct information to work with. The other issue is that of uh, the unpaid care work. We saw that when we had a lot of hospitalization, especially to do with the second wave and now the third wave, you still find that quite a lot of people are going into the hospitals late, meaning that to a large extent or the disease burden is falling on women to take care of those that are sick because people still were not too sure if they have to go to the hospital. So it just meant that women were back into the community work, the household work, which automatically assumes that they have to be the ones that provide the care. And uh, doing this in a very precarious situation where, you know, the transmission rates are very high and most of the households might not necessarily have the means for them to practice all the things that we are talking about, the isolation or, you know, not using communal places and whatsoever. Most of the people here are really poor. They are staying in a household where they can't even have a person or a patient isolate themselves. And it, it, that burden of, of figuring out what to do would be falling on women. And this has just increased the unpaid care work for women. The other issue related to the impacts of COVID in terms of even just the women, uh, women's well-being was the fact that given our fragile, our weak health systems, it meant that there was quite a lot of preoccupation of the health workers with the response for COVID-19. And what that did was to actually take away the very few health workers away from the essential services in terms of sexual and reproductive health, maternal health. And there is actually evidence by the Ministry of Health that they saw a significant drop of women going to access family planning or women going to access child birth services that through a skilled birth attendant. And that's really been one of the impacts that we are seeing, that the women are afraid to go to the hospital because they know that they can expose themselves to COVID-19, but also because they just think that there's no one to take care of them because everybody was preoccupied with COVID-19. 
we saw a secondary impact of COVID-19 on women and girls, uh, which was to do with the increased numbers of gender-based violence cases that were being reported. And also, particularly in the case of Malawi, we saw a number of teenage pregnancies. So the Ministry of Gender, supported by us, civil society organizations, carried out a rapid gender assessment in 2020, which actually showed that, yes, there is evidence that even though we didn't have a strict lockdown, but the fact that the men that were working elsewhere had left their jobs to stay at home in compliance with the restrictions that government had put, quite a number of tensions within the domestic setup came to light and also that just fueled the levels of gender-based violence. And the Malawi police actually confirmed that they are having a lot of cases of economic abandonment or physical violence uh, that are being perpetrated against the women. But particularly for Malawi, we saw a spike in early child marriages and also early teen pregnancies because of the period where the young girls and the boys were out of school because there were restrictions that necessitated the closure of schools. And my final point would be to do with the loss of income on the part of the women. We know that quite a lot of informal sector workers were the ones that were jeopardized. People were no longer going to the markets to buy the fresh vegetables and fruits that women sell. We know that because of the restrictions that countries put in terms of the management of their borders, there was less or, if any, cross-border trade. And these are really areas that a lot of women use to gain their income, the buying and selling between Malawi and Zambia and South Africa and Zimbabwe and Mozambique and Tanzania. We saw that the restrictions of the borders uh, management actually caused a severe strain on the women that rely on cross-border trade. And then, of course, it was the daily wages that were put out of jobs when the shops, when the hotels closed. It was the women that were providing these services in the hospitality industry, in the wholesale retail industry that lost their jobs. So we know that this has significantly reversed the gains that we are making around women's economic empowerment. Thank you, Linga. We know from Oxfam Ireland's 2020 report, Irish Aid, that there were spikes of violence against women in several countries where Oxfam have long-term development programmes. In Malawi, for example, data from a rapid assessment show a 68% increase in reported instances of gender-based and sexual violence. Linga, it sounds like it was a difficult time for many women in Malawi. How did you manage to get your messaging out to communities on gender-based violence and find solutions for the problems? In fact, the Ministry of Gender acknowledges Oxfam having been one of the very first responders to begin to look at pointing to everyone else to looking at how COVID impact is also, you know, impacting on um, women and girls and gender inequalities. So what we did was one, when we had a break in terms of uh, the rapid rise of cases, we managed to be able to do two things. One, within self-programming, we were able to work with the women MPs, members of parliament, to actually go down into the constituencies to hear from some of the community leaders regarding what is happening and what we can do. And we had very viable action plans that we were then able to immediately support. So two things that helped us. One, 
we built a coalition of the change agents that we work with uh, within the constituencies uh, across the country to be able to actually use mobile funds to do some campaigns. We also leverage on community-based radio stations to be able to give out information. And what we're able to do is to identify very key influencers like senior chiefs or members of women's groups or even the women MPs themselves, both male and female, even the first lady of Malawi, to mount a campaign that would be able to bring to light the issues that we had begun to hear around uh, teenage pregnancies and child marriages. And that proved to be very effective because quite a lot of people then began to realize that we do have a secondary impact of COVID-19 that we need to respond to. So we mobilized the church, faith groups, we mobilized the traditional leaders, we mobilized role models and also the high level role models to be able to bring that message through the radio, national radio, community radio, and also the mobile vans. The other issue that we did was also to enable the volunteers and I would like to thank Irish Aid and Oxfam Island because they were able to also support us with the repurposing of funds through the current grant that we have. And we we're able to buy simple things to enable them to do their work. For instance, you know, small bicycles that the community groups could use, the human rights defenders at local level could use to cut down the time that they needed to travel to different places to deliver the messages, make them efficient in the work that they could do to make sure that they're in places for a short time uh, whilst they're protecting others, but they're also protecting themselves. So simple things like megaphones, you know, flip charts, posters that had the messages speaking to the particular local issues were very helpful and then enabling them with things like more motorcycles and bicycles for them to be able to run around to make the cases. The chiefs were also very innovative. They came up with bylaws that are agreed upon at community level and also at district council level, where if they had particular issues, they were able to actually put bylaws to stopping those things that they thought were super spreaders uh, among the people, but also to deal with the particular gender issues that had begun to emerge. So we saw quite a number of chiefs take an active role in terms of uh, setting up the bylaws that could, one, help containing the pandemic, but also to speak to the particular gender issues, especially to do with the teen pregnancies, the rising cases of gender-based violence and the child marriages. The Minister of Gender and the Minister of Education, they work with us, Oxfam and the partners, to do a back-to-school campaign. So as soon as we knew that the government is about to open the schools because the cases had actually decelerated, we mounted a back-to-school campaign where we were able to make sure that if there was a girl that got pregnant whilst the pandemic was at its peak, we take advantage of the government of Malawi readmission policy to ensure that when she's given birth, the child can be looked after and then she can go to school to start being integrated. And of course, we're also able to support some of the community in terms of now, how do the young girls stay in school knowing that the child is being looked after, she's not presented a burden to the families. So we're also able to look at mechanisms of supporting the households to deal with this additional workload of looking after the child whilst the girl got back to school. Thank you. A report from Safe Ireland called Tracking the Shadow Pandemic shows a total of 3,450 women and 589 children who had never, as far as was known, contacted a domestic violence shelter or agency before, looking for support and safety from abuse and coercive control during the first six months of COVID-19 from March to August 2020. 
This equates to 575 new women and 98 new children every month. New women and children account for 29% and 24% respectively of those who look for support from a domestic violence service during the first wave of the COVID crisis. Was this what you were seeing at the Women's Council as well, Orla? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it was harder for women to reach out for support. And that was about being trapped. And it was also, you know, the situation of being caught with their abuser. And so any opportunities for making calls, for getting escape, getting space, we're gone. And, you know, I mean, for a lot of women, that might be about, you know, visiting relatives, might be going to work. It might be a whole combination of things. And that was removed from them. So absolutely, we saw very quickly once that sort of bigger awareness campaign was launched. And that was a whole sort of campaign done with the frontline services. And it was trying to get the message out there very quickly. It was, we're still here, was the message to say, you know, please contact us. And that certainly happened. We saw it in terms of both reports to the services, as you've highlighted there within the figures, but also from the guards as well in reporting, you know, serious incidences and all incidences. And I think clearly it shows two things. One, it shows the prevalence of domestic violence in our society. So I think there has been a real sort of wake up call in terms of just how pervasive and prevalent it is you know, for right across the country, it doesn't matter whether you live in a rural or urban area. And also it can happen to all women, women, you know, in all our diversity, domestic violence can be a reality and an experience. But also what it shows is the real lack of sustainable statutory sort of infrastructure around this. And and that's why I think for so many of the frontline services, it was so difficult um, because they didn't have the resources. They don't have the resources to currently to cope with that level. And I think that this is really important because, you know, if we're going to be effective about tackling violence against women, domestic or sexual violence, then we're going to see that increase in reporting because we want women to report when it happens and to seek support. But that has to be matched then by the services, because the worst thing that can happen for a woman is to seek support and then find it's not there, because then where does she go and and, and will she call again? So one of the things that's really been highlighted in this Ireland and after a huge campaign from so many of us in civil society and frontline services campaigned for Ireland to sign up to the Istanbul Convention. So this is the Council of Europe Convention on Violence Against Women. And Ireland have signed and ratified that as a result of that campaign. But, you know, one of the things within that, if we're to meet the commitments, and this does set a sort of a, you know, a really high standard for the standard that states need to commit to, is about refuge spaces. So there needs to be a huge increase in the number of refuge spaces that women can go to. And we're not meeting the requirements within the convention. And COVID has really highlighted the need for that. Safe Ireland have reported, you know, having to turn women away. Refuges are reporting that, having to turn women away. So we need to really match. Now that, you know, I think there is that greater awareness of of the prevalence of domestic violence, but we need to match it with support services. And similarly around reporting for sexual violence, this is a part of most women's lives. Most women will have experienced some form of sexual violence or harassment, and a lot of the time will feel that there's no place to go with it, so they don't report. So we need to see that shift in services and supports here so we can meet the demand. And we can also, I suppose... On the positive side, so that we can meet the effectiveness of our new approach around a culture of of coming out and talking about it and reporting. But it absolutely has to be met with investment, resources, 
that need to be there frontline services and also a much better joining up because you know one of the experiences as well within COVID has been where women have sought to leave abusive relationships that there isn't necessarily the support there for example in terms of housing our income support. And we've seen that as well in sexual violence as well. So there needs to be a sort of a wraparound support. So when a person comes forward, that there's a whole series of state supports that come in and can support the person because otherwise it's just so difficult to do. And that's certainly been a big part of women talking about their experiences. So it's not just about one support. It's not just about emergency refuge spaces. It's about long-term housing. It's about income supports. And it's also about supports in terms of legal supports as well, whether that's about um, reporting in terms of criminal cases, but also in terms of our family court system for many women, particularly women with children in domestic abusive relationships. Thank you. Linga, is there much investment in domestic violence support services in Malawi? Yes, yes. Actually, to agree with the point that Ola is raising around the investments that we make in this sector, because clearly most of the women have said, look, I'll only go to the police station if I know that they'll be able to have all the necessary services for me to be able to report my case within the confidentiality that the law requires, and then I can get the immediate support. So the point that she's making is very important. We have seen less and less investments in the essential services for the victims and survivors of gender-based violence. And that really acts as a deterrent and a disincentive for the women and the girls to report when there are cases. So I agree that the only way we are going to have people to report, the only way people will be able to break the silence is when they know that there are corresponding services that they would be able to access for their life to be able to still be dignified as they go through the trauma of domestic violence, of gender-based violence. And I think it is really, really a wake-up call that uh, we need to make sure that the services are in order, they are available for the people to access. And I just wanted to agree with that point because we also saw that here in Malawi where there were no quality services to enable the women to be able to access so that they can get help during such a crisis situation. But it doesn't have to be realized when we have a shock in the system. This is supposed to be part and parcel of the minimum standards we should have. Thank you, Linga. COVID really shone a light on the value of care work. And even before COVID, women and girls put in 12 and a half billion hours of unpaid care work each and every day, a contribution to the global economy of at least $10.8 trillion a year. That's more than three times the size of the global tech industry. That's from Oxfam's Time to Care report. And the National Women's Council carried out its own survey on women and with 85% saying that their caring responsibilities increased during the pandemic. And also the Central Statistics Office in Ireland found that women's well-being was significantly more affected than men's during the pandemic, even though men suffered as well. Or how did the Women's Council see care work highlighted in the pandemic? Well, certainly one of the things that we noticed, and I think it's come out as well in that CSO study, has been the impact on women's mental health. I think that is one of the things that's, without a doubt, this feeling of being absolutely overwhelmed, of being put under enormous pressure to both, you know, try to keep everything going within families and really suffering. And I think it's going to be one of the more long-term impacts as well in terms of access, I think, to mental health supports, but also a feeling of isolation, 
and not necessarily isolation, being with people, being in families, but feeling that they were really trying to cope with all this on their own and that they were at breaking point. And that has come out in a number of different ways. It's come out in terms of the care issue of coping with all of the different care responsibilities. It's also really come out for that group of women, women who were pregnant during covid and their experiences, particularly around what's happened in Ireland with the maternity restrictions that were um, put on within hospitals, her partners weren't allowed to be there. And so that whole period of pregnancy within COVID is one of the ones that so many women had contacted us about and just how difficult that was. And then also not being able to access all of the supports in terms of, you know, having a newborn baby and a lot of the supports that would have been there, particularly supports that are provided outside by support organisations you know, like mother and toddler groups, things like that, that were just not there either. And that's really impacted on mental health. So I think that is a huge issue. But also, I think one of the other issues that's come out in terms of the care one is that there is a a growing sort of narrative that care is much more shared now between women and men, and that men are taking much more of a responsibility in terms of care. Well, actually, COVID has shown and the statistics have shown that that's not actually the case. And it's the emotional labour that women do that puts women under so much pressure. So what I mean by that is it's all the responsibility bit. It's all of the organising around it, that that hasn't shifted. And that's still very much women. So, for example, you know, there were two groups of women, women who were in employment and were trying to work from home and also trying to cope with all of the homeschooling and all of the care responsibilities and how difficult that was. And then there was the experience of lone parents And we're talking vast majority here are women, over 80% are women, of trying to cope in the situation of being very much on their own and trying to deal with everything. Um, So there were different experiences given where people were, but across the board, that sense of having to manage this and it just not being possible and that that has had an, an enormous impact on their well-being. And I think there is an issue there in terms of the services not being there to support them, but also how we regard care in Ireland, because we generally don't value it. And we can see that. I mean, one of the campaigns which, you know, from the time before I worked in the Women's Council, I worked in an unemployed centre in North Dublin. And childcare, the campaign for public childcare has been a part of the women's movement for such a long time in Ireland. And it feels like we're still far away from getting there. But that's so key because... Women need to be able to have access to public childcare and that public service where it's not about affordability and they're not trying to organise their life around available care and and an infrastructure that, that relates within families. So I think, yeah, I mean, it's one of the issues that, and again, you can see the Citizens' Assembly in Ireland have recommended public childcare. It's one of the issues the government are going to have to grapple with within the most recent by-election that we've had in Ireland. Childcare after housing was coming up very much from people in the constituency. So it is at a crisis point and it needs to be recognised and valued. Linga, in Ireland, we have historically totally undervalued care, be that childcare or care of the elderly having absolutely no structures in place or at worst sending pregnant women into homes to be abused. How is care looked at and valued in Malawi and does it all fall to women and girls? Is there any state support? Is there any public childcare? 
Well, actually, I am impressed that this could be one of the points of public debate in Ireland, because certainly that's not the case here in Malawi. We are far from having the debate around child care or the care for the elderly. It is assumed culturally and socially, we are socialized to believe that this is a burden that should fall on, on the hands of women and young girls, and that has been the case. I have not seen much public debate on this issue, but obviously there are studies that are suggesting that the unpaid care work is getting too much. It's limiting women's meaningful engagement in their productive activities. It's also undercutting the contributions that women themselves could be gaining from what the state provides for. So it is not yet a debate here very much driven by the cultural norms and set up that uh, care work has got to belong to women. I can stop there for now. Thank you, Linga. There's the issue of change and needing to be at the table in order to make that change. But with the care work unevenly distributed between men and women and women facing sexual harassment and misogyny in public life as politicians, women are far less likely to run for political office. In light of this abuse that women face, how important is it to encourage more women to enter the public arena, Orla? Yeah, I mean, it is really important. It's really important for democracy. The fact that women are over 50% of the population and that in Ireland, we languish down in the 20s, less than 25% in both our local and national government. And we've been there for a long time. So there's a, you know, a democracy issue and a democratic issue in relation to that. But also it makes an enormous difference in terms of equality issues. You know, and to just to give an example, even in terms of COVID, right at the start of COVID, when the pandemic payments were introduced, it turned out that women who were pregnant and were on maternity leave weren't included in the payments. And I think, you know, one of the things that really struck me about, you know, there was an immediate campaign by ourselves, by women, and we got that changed. It was a basic indirect discrimination. It took a while to get changed. But one of the things that really struck me was politicians saying when they changed it, when they reversed that decision, was it wasn't deliberate. We just didn't think about it. And that just said so much about the absence of women in leadership, because so often women's issues are, and it's not just women's issues, but issues that affect women more than men are just not taken into account. And that was a really good example. And we can see that in countries where there is a greater representation of women, that issues like childcare, issues like investing in violence against women, there are real differences there. So that's why it's really important. So it's important to think for democracy, but also for addressing inequality. I mean, some of the barriers you've named, and obviously we've talked about the care one, and that is is a barrier. But there are other barriers that are almost culturally and institutionalized within political parties, because how political parties do their business in Ireland, it's very patriarchal, it's very male dominated. To give an example, we did a piece of research in terms of women in local government. And one of the things that we found was that the places that political parties go to in order to see are their potential candidates. In Ireland, sporting organisations play a huge role. Local GAA plays a much higher role than, for example, community organisations. 
So it was actually found in that research that between family connections, connections to GAA in communities was a real place where parties went to select candidates. So it was a big part of candidate selection. Where women might be, and whether that's in community organisations, that was a site that was far less seen as a potential in terms of where you go for candidates. And other barriers, and, and you've named one, and it's becoming an increasing feature, and young women in particular are saying it to us in the Women's Council around leadership, is the whole piece about online abuse online misogyny, the piece of where women will put themselves forward. And also it's the intersectionality bit. And and this is particularly a feature, for example, for traveller women, for black women going forward for election, then really puts them up there in terms of receiving a torrent of abuse. And women describe that as well in terms of the experience around the local elections and standing for local government. And that is really operating as a chilling factor. So we're hearing a lot from young women about, no, I wouldn't be prepared to do that. And we're also hearing about it from women, from older women saying, I wouldn't be prepared to do that to my family, to put them in that firing line. So this issue of online abuse really needs to be tackled because it is acting as a real barrier. And then other barriers are we haven't changed the culture of how we do politics. It is. It's positive to see that there is now um, a new forum that's been set up in the Oireachtas to look at how we can change ways of working because COVID has thrown up a lot of how we could do things differently. You know, does every TD and senator need to travel in order to be part of a committee or to vote? So we need to look at more remote ways of working. There's definitely different ways of doing things that change the culture of how we do politics in Ireland. And that relates to, yes, candidate selection, but also when people are elected Because the other big problem within this is retention. So what we find is that women might put themselves forward, get elected, but stay for one term. And that's not what happens with men. You see men being, you know, repeatedly elected to a much greater degree than women. And that's because after one term, women often decide, well, I'm actually not going to stand again. Or women who have young children decide, no, that that is just not manageable. And I mean, it is quite astounding that here we are in 2021 and we've just grappled with the experience of the first time a minister um, has to take maternity leave and what do we do about it and all of the sort of different ways to come up with for how this was going to be managed and there still isn't a proper structural way if it happens to somebody again. So that I think really does show how we have an archaic system that is not in any way conducive to more women going forward in politics. We've heard from Orla what the situation is in Ireland in relation to women in politics, but we see that Oxfam has successfully increased the number of women in political leadership roles in Malawi. What initiatives were behind some of this increase? How did you do it? Maybe you can you can explain it to us and Ireland can learn from Malawi in this regard. So yes, indeed, so many accolades for Malawi and not forgetting, of course, the historical fact that uh, within Southern Africa, we are among the first countries to bring out a first female president, Joyce Banda, you remember, in 2012. So yes, uh, a lot of strides are taking place in terms of getting women in the political leadership and also other leaderships. And I think the statistics that you are actually uh, presenting are something to celebrate because we have really worked hard to get to where we are. So I, I relate to what Ola was saying in terms of issues of low retention of women. 
And that's where for us as Oxfam, together with our local partners, we support from Irish Aid and Oxfam Island, we are able to mount this elector. And now we twinned it up with the Retain Her campaign. So one of the key things that has worked is really supporting the women to be visible. So politics in Malawi is still very much male, very much driven by the patriarchal values. And I think one of the things that we have done as in the women's movement is to really make sure that we can profile women and prepare them for their engagement in politics. So one of the things that we did prior to the 2019 campaign as Oxfam together with the partners is to really profile those that are two women that you talked about that were in parliament, what we did was to create stories and voices around the successes that they have done. And we started as early as 2018, way before the election itself. And that was really to just demystify the whole things around women not being able to engage in politics, women when they engage as members of parliament, they are not able to fulfill their oversight, representation and legislative role. So we use the 32 women as really the role models that can support further uh, women coming out to be able to contend for 2019. And that really worked very well. And it also strengthened the current 32, the then 32 women that were in parliament to the extent that for the first time we had at least 12 women being retained to get back into parliament. And this was quite a significant number of seats to retain because previously they were only retaining as, as low as two or three women. So there was really high turnover on the part of the women MPs. But for the first time, we had those 12 defend their seats. And then we also had the additional that came in to make it to 45 women out of the 193, the highest ever since we attained our democracy. So we really think that um, the positive imaging of women, the profiling of women is an important aspect of breaking down those stereotypes, the negative narratives that people have around women. And then we quickly mobilize ourselves around making sure that we can engage the political parties to ensure that they do present female nominations for the office of the speaker. So we went to the two major parties that we are contending to offer people for the position of the speaker, and we did ask them to commit to making sure that they can present female MPs as possible candidates for the position of the speaker. And at the end of the day, we had two women go head to head against each other. But for us, it was a very good strategy because we said, whoever makes it, at least we know that it is a woman. So we ended up having right order Catherine Gotani Hara as the one that was chosen as speaker. And then, of course, we also have a second deputy speaker who is the first Muslim woman to occupy the position of second deputy speaker. So for us, it has really taken coalitions being built with women's groupings, men that are supporting the cause for gender equality. The media has played an important role. Faith leaders, we had to make sure that we can talk to them so that they are able to advance the right narratives around women's political representation. We had to uh, have campaigns with chiefs so that they can actually break down the negative cultural images that are associated with women. So quite a lot of coalitions and looking at ways in which we can support women way before the, the election itself. 
And of course, one of the critical issues that we also needed to pay attention to is the fact that getting the women themselves in parliament is not enough. We have to make sure that we are able to support them for their ability to really be effective leaders so that if the public is watching, they're able to be convinced that, yes, indeed, women are doing it. We have more women that are seeking better management of public resources. We have more women that are pushing towards stamping out corruption. We have women that are looking at the delivery of essential services. So we really did make quite a commitment to support the women after they got into parliament. I agree with Ola in terms of the way politics is managed, and this is still a challenge. We have seen how women have been shortchanged at primary level when they are having their elections, when they're having the conventions, Men have their cliques, they are able to push out the strong women out of the party positions that they are vying for. And in recent times, we've also seen the pervasive nature of violence against women in elections, where women are intimidated, they are harassed, and they're even physically attacked. And this we have seen as a deterrent. And particular to 2019, what we did was to mobilize ourselves as women CSOs, working with the women in the political parties to actually say enough is enough. And that was the first ever cross-party solidarity match that we've had to protest against the violence against women in elections. And we saw that eventually the parties had to be convened and they had to sign uh, peace accords to ensuring that violence against women and, uh, in the elections does not take place. So there are ways in which women are pushed to the, uh, to the margins, but we are fighting on and we are pressing on. Massive thanks to my guests today, Orla O'Connor and Linga Mihawa, for joining me on Oxfam Ireland's First World Problems podcast. I hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as I did. You can post your thoughts and comments on the podcast using the Twitter hashtag First World Problems Pod and check out OxfamIreland.org to learn more about Oxfam's work.